Volume Two, Part Two of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shirley Anderson. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Two. Now as far as the land of these bold men, we have full knowledge of the country and the nations on the near side of them, for some of the Scythians make their way to them, from whom it is easy to get knowledge from, and from some of the Greeks too, from the Baristhenes port, and the other ports of Pontus. Such Scythians as visit them, transact their business with seven interpreters and in seven languages. As far as these men this country is known, then, but what lies north of the bold men, no one can say with exact knowledge, for high and impassable mountains bar the way, as no one crosses them. These bold men say, although I do not believe them, that the mountains are inhabited by men with goats' feet, and that beyond these are men who sleep for six months out of the twelve. This I cannot accept as true at all. But the country east of the bold heads is known for certain to be inhabited by the Isidones. However, of what lies north either the bold heads or the Isidones, we have no knowledge except what comes from the report of these latter. It is said to be the custom of the Isidones that, whenever a man's father dies, all the nearest of kin bring beasts of the flock, and, having killed these and cut up the flesh, they also cut up the dead father of their host, and set out all the flesh mixed together for a feast. As for his head, they strip it bare and clean and gild it, and keep it for a sacred relic, to which they offer solemn sacrifice yearly. Every son does this for his father, just like the Greeks in their festivals of honour of the dead. In other respects, these are said to be a law-abiding people too, and the women to have equal power with the men. Of these two, then, we have knowledge, but as for what is north of them, it is from the Isidones that the tale comes of the one-eyed men and the griffins that guard gold. This is told by the Scythians, who have heard it from them, and we have taken it as true from the Scythians, and call these people by the Scythian name Arimaspians, for in the Scythian tongue Arima is one, and Spau is the eye. All the aforesaid country is exceedingly cold, for eight months of every year there is unbearable frost, and during these you do not make mud by pouring out water, but by lighting a fire. The sea freezes, as does all the Cimmerian Bosporus, and the Scythians living on this side of the trench lead armies over the ice, and drive their wagons across to the land of the Sindhi. So it is winter for eight months, and cold in that country for the four that remain. Here there is a different sort of winter than the winters in other lands, for in the season, for rain, scarcely any falls, but all summer it rains unceasingly. And when there are thunderstorms in other lands, here there are none, but in the summer there are plenty of them. If there is a thunderstorm in winter, they are apt to wonder at it as a portent. And so too, if there is an earthquake summer or winter, it is considered a portent in Scythia. Horses have the endurance to bear the Scythian winter, mules and asses cannot bear it at all. And yet in other lands, while asses and mules can endure frost, horses that stand in it are frost-bitten. 
and in my opinion it is for this reason that the hornless kind of cattle grow no horns in scythia a verse of homer in the odyssey attests to my opinion libya the land where lambs are born with horns on their foreheads homer odyssey four eighty five in which it is correctly observed that in hot countries the horns grow quickly whereas in very cold countries beasts hardly grow horns or not at all in scythia then this happens because of the cold but i think it strange for it was always the way of my history to investigate excursors that in the whole of ellis no mules can be conceived although the country is not cold nor is there any evident cause the aliens themselves say that it is because of a curse that mules cannot be conceived among them but whenever the season is at hand for the mares to conceive they drive them into the countries of their neighbours and then send asses after them until the mares are pregnant and then they drive them home again but regarding the feathers of which the scythians say that the air is full so thickly that no one can see or traverse the land beyond i have this opinion north of that country snow falls continually though less in summer than in winter as is to be expected whoever has seen snow falling thickly near him knows himself my meaning for snow is like feathers and because of the winter which is as i have said the regions to the north of this continent are uninhabited i think therefore that in this story of feathers the scythians and their neighbours only speak of snow figuratively so then i have spoken of those parts that are said to be most distant concerning the hyperborean people neither the scythians nor any other inhabitants of these lands tell us anything except perhaps the isidones and i think even they say nothing for if they did then the scythians too would have told just as they tell of the one-eyed men and homer too in his poem the hero's sons if that is truly the work of homer the delians say much more about them than any others do they say that offerings wrapped in straw are brought from the hyperboreans to scythia when these have passed scythia each nation in turn receives from its neighbours until they are carried to the adriatic sea which is the most westerly limit of their journey from there they are brought on to the south the people of dodona being the first greeks to receive them from dodona they come down to the melian gulf and are carried across to euboea and one city sends them on to another until they come to charistus after this andros is left out of their journey for charistians carry them to tenos and tenians to delos thus they say these offerings come to delos but on the first journey the hyperboreans sent two maidens bearing the offerings to whom the delians give the names hyperosh and laudice and five men of their people with them as escort for safe conduct those who are now called perphories and greatly honoured at delos but when those whom they sent never returned they took it amiss that they should be condemned always to be sending people and not getting them back and so they carry the offerings wrapped in straw to their borders and tell their neighbours to send them on from their own country to the next and the offerings it is said come by this conveyance to delos i can say of my own knowledge that there is a custom like these offerings namely that when the thracian and paeonian women sacrifice to the royal artemis they have straw with them while they sacrifice i know that they do this the delian girls and boys cut their hair in honour of these hyperborean maidens who died at delos the girls before marriage cut off a tress and lay it on the tomb wound around a spindle 
this tomb is at the foot of an olive tree on the left hand of the entrance of the temple of artemis the delian boys twine some of their hair around a green stalk and lay it on the tomb likewise in this way then these maidens are honoured by the inhabitants of delos these same delians relate that two virgins arge and opis came from the hyperboreans way of the aforesaid peoples to delos earlier than hyperosh and laodice these latter came to bring to aletheia the tribute which they had agreed to pay for easing child-bearing but arge and opis they say came with the gods themselves and received honours of their own from the delians for the women collected gifts for them calling their names in the hymn made for them by olan of lycia it was from delos that the islanders and the ionians learned to sing hymns to opis and arge calling upon their names and collecting gifts this olan after coming from lycia also made the other and ancient hymns that are sung at delos furthermore they say that when the thigh bones are burnt and sacrificed on the altar the ashes are all cast on the burial place of opis and arge behind the temple of artemis looking east nearest the refectory of the people of Ceos. i have said this much of the hyperboreans and let it suffice for i do not tell the story of that abarus alleged to be a hyperborean who carried the arrow over the whole world fasting all the while but if there are men beyond the north wind then there are others beyond the south and i laugh to see how many have before now drawn maps of the world not one of them reasonably for they draw the world as round as if fashioned by compasses encircled by the ocean river and asia and europe of a like extent for myself i will in a few words indicate the extent of the two and how each should be drawn the land where the persians live extends to the southern sea which is called red beyond these to the north are the medes and beyond the medes the saspires and beyond the saspires the colchians whose country extends to the northern sea into which the phasis river flows so these four nations live between the one sea and the other but west of this region two peninsulas stretch out from it into the sea which i will now describe on the north side one of the peninsulas begins at the phasis and stretches seaward along the pontus and the hellespont as far as sigium in the trode on the south side the same peninsula has a sea-coast beginning at the Miriandric gulf that is near phoenicia and stretching seaward as far as the triopian headland on this peninsula live thirty nations this is the first peninsula but the second beginning with persia stretches to the red sea and is persian land and next the neighbouring land of assyria and after assyria arabia this peninsula ends not truly but only by common consent at the arabian gulf to which darius brought a canal from the nile now from the persian country to phoenicia there is a wide and vast tract of land and from phoenicia this peninsula runs beside our sea by way of the syrian palestine and egypt which is at the end of it in this peninsula there are just three nations so much for the part of asia west of the persians but what is beyond the persians and medes and saspires and colchians east towards the rising sun this is bounded on the one hand by the red sea and to the north by the caspian sea and the araxes river which flows towards the sun's rising as far as india asia is an inhabited land 
but thereafter all to the east is desolation nor can any one say what kind of land is there such is asia and such its extent but libya is on this second peninsula for libya comes next after egypt the egyptian part of this peninsula is narrow for from our sea to the red sea it is a distance of a hundred and twenty-five miles that is a thousand stades but after this narrow part the peninsula which is called libya is very broad i wonder then at those who have mapped out and divided the world into libya asia and europe for the difference between them is great seeing that in length europe stretches along both the others together and it appears to me to be wider beyond all comparison for libya shows clearly that it is bounded by the sea except where it borders on asia necos king of egypt first discovered this and made it known when he had finished digging the canal that leads from the nile to the arabian gulf he sent phoenicians in ships instructing them to sail on their return voyage past the pillars of heracles until they came into the northern sea and so to egypt so the phoenicians set out from the red sea and sailed to the southern sea whenever autumn came they would put in and plant the land in whatever part of libya they had reached and there await the harvest then having gathered the crop they sailed on so that after two years had passed it was in the third that they rounded the pillars of heracles and came to egypt there they said what some may believe though i do not that in sailing around libya they had the sun on their right hand thus was the first knowledge of libya gained the next story is that of the Carthaginians, for as for Satasbes, son of Tiaspes, an Achaemenid, he did not sail around Libya, although he was sent for that purpose. But he feared the length and loneliness of the voyage, and so returned without accomplishing the task laid upon him by his mother, for he had raped the virgin daughter of Zopyrus, son of Megabizus, and when on this charge he was to be impaled by King Xerxes. Sitaspe's mother, who was Darius's sister, interceded for his life, saying that she would impose a heavier punishment on him than Xerxes, for he would be compelled to sail around Libya until he completed his voyage and came to the Arabian Gulf. Xerxes agreed to this, and Sitaspe's went to Egypt, where he received a ship and a crew from the Egyptians, and sailed past the pillars of Heracles. Having sailed out beyond them, and rounded the Libyan promontory, called Soloas, he sailed south, but when he had been many months sailing over the sea, and always more before him, he turned back and made sail for Egypt. Coming to King Xerxes from there, he related in his narrative that, when he was farthest distant, he sailed by a country of little men, who wore palm-leaf clothing. These, whenever he and his men put into land with their ship, left their towns and fled to the hills. He and his men did no harm when they landed, and took nothing from the people except cattle. As to his not sailing completely around Libya, the reason, he said, was that the ship could move no farther, but was stopped. But Xerxes did not believe that Sitaspes spoke the truth, and, as the task appointed was unfulfilled, he impaled him, punishing him on the charge first brought against him. This Sitaspes had a eunuch, who, as soon as he heard of his master's death, escaped to Samos, with a great hoard of wealth, of which a man of Samos got possession. I know the man's name, but deliberately omit it. 
but as to asia most of it was discovered by darius there is a river indus second of all rivers in the production of crocodiles darius desiring to know where this indus empties into the sea sent ships manned by silax a man of Cariander, and others whose word he trusted these set out from the city of caspatyrus and the pactiac country and sailed down the river toward the east and the sunrise until they came to the sea and voyaging over the sea west they came in the thirtieth month to that place from which the egyptian king sent the above-mentioned phoenicians to sail around libya after this circumnavigation darius subjugated the indians and made use of this sea thus it was discovered that asia except the parts towards the rising sun was in other respects like libya but it is plain that none have obtained knowledge of europe's eastern or northern regions so as to be able to say if it is bounded by seas its length is known to be enough to stretch along both asia and libya i cannot guess for what reason the earth which is one has three names all women's and why the boundary lines set for it are the egyptian nile river and the colchian phasis river though some say that the maietan tanas river and the Cimmerian ferries are boundaries and i cannot learn the names of those who divided the world or where they got the names which they used for libya is said by most greeks to be named after a native woman of that name and asia after the wife of prometheus yet the lydians claim a share in the latter name saying that asia was not named after prometheus's wife asia but after asias the son of cotus who was the son of manes and that from him the asiad clan at sardis also takes its name but as for europe no men have any knowledge whether it is bounded by seas or not or where it got its name nor is it clear who gave the name unless we say that the land took its name from the tyrian europa having been it would seem before then nameless like the rest but it is plain that this woman was of asiatic birth and never came to this land which the greeks now call europe but only from phoenicia to crete and from crete to lycia thus much i have said of these matters and let it suffice we will use the names established by custom nowhere are men so ignorant as in the lands by the euxine pontus excluding the scythian nation into which darius led his army for we cannot show that any nation within the region of pontus has any cleverness nor do we know of overlooking the scythian nation and anarchus any notable man born there but the scythian race has made the cleverest discovery that we know in what is the most important of all human affairs i do not praise the scythians in all respects but in this the most important that they have contrived that no one who attacks them can escape and no one can catch them if they do not want to be found for when men have no established cities or forts but are all nomads and mounted archers not living by tilling the soil but by raising cattle and carrying their dwellings on wagons how can they not be invincible and unapproachable they have made this discovery in a land that suits their purpose and has rivers that are their allies for their country is flat and grassy and well watered and rivers run through it not very many fewer in number than the canals of egypt as many of them as are famous and can be entered from the sea i shall name there is the ister which has five mouths and the tyrus and hipponus and borysthenes and pantycarpes and hypercurus and gerus and tanas their courses are as i shall indicate 
the ister the greatest of all rivers which we know flows with the same volume in summer and winter it is the most westerly scythian river of all and the greatest because other rivers are its tributaries those that make it great five flowing through the scythian country are these the river called by the scythians purata and by the greeks piratus and besides this the tyrantus the Arvarus, the Naperus, and the Ordesus. The first named of these rivers is a great stream, flowing east and uniting its water with the Ister. The second, the Tiarantus, is more westerly and smaller. The Arvarus, Naperus, and Ordesus flow between these two and pour their waters into the Ister. These are the native-born Scythian rivers that help to swell it. But the Maris River, which commingles with the Ister, flows from the Agathyrsi. The Atlas, Aras, and Tibesis, three other great rivers that pour into it, flow north from the heights of Hymus. The Arthris, the Nose, and the Artanes flow into the Ister from the country of the Crobisi in Thrace. The Seus River, which cuts through the middle of Hymus, flows from the Paeonians and the mountain range of Rhodope. The Angris River flows north from Illyria into the Tribalic Plain and the Brongus River, and the Brongus into the Ister, which receives these two great rivers into itself. The Carpus and another river, called the Alpis, also flow northward, from the country north of the Ombrisi to flow into it, for the Ister traverses the whole of Europe, rising among the Celts, who are the most westerly dwellers in Europe, except for the Sinites and flowing thus clean across Europe, it issues forth along the borders of Scythia. With these rivers aforesaid, and many others too, as its tributaries, the Ister becomes the greatest river of all, while river for river the Nile surpasses it in volume, since that owes its volume of water to no tributary river or spring. But the Ister is always the same height in summer and winter, the reason for which, I think, is this. In winter it is of its customary size, or only a little greater than is natural to it, for in that country in winter there is very little rain, but snow everywhere. In the summer the abundant snow that has fallen in winter melts and pours from all sides into the Ister, so that this snow melt pours into the river and helps to swell it, and much violent rain besides, as the summer is the season of rain, and in proportion as the sun draws to itself more water in the summer, than in winter. The water that commingles with the Ister is many times more abundant in summer than it is in winter. These opposites keep the balance true, so that the volume of the river appears always the same. End of Volume 2, Part 2 Recording by Shirley Anderson